You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Okay, we're starting at Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal for them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus told him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put my, at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, I am, leading, am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat at the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place with a uh, place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Uh, let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, we thank you for this, uh, your word. 
And uh, we ask that you would use it this day to uh, move us to keep trusting and obeying our Lord Jesus, uh, even in the midst of suffering. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, The reality is, in Australia, I reckon it's becoming increasingly hard to be a Christian. I don't know if you've experienced that or not. Uh, The other day I was catching an Uber. If you don't know, I've got a vision impairment, and that means that I I maybe catch Ubers a little bit more frequently than uh, other people do, because I can't drive. I was catching an Uber. They typically ask, hey, what do you do for work? Uh, And I say, I'm a a pastor of a church. Usually that's a, a complete conversation killer. Uh, but on this particular occasion, uh, the guy said to me, he said, you know, I used to go to church, but then I discovered that the leadership of the church that I was going to had these completely outdated views when it comes to, maybe you can guess, gender, sexuality, and marriage. And so he said, I, I just I didn't want a bar of it anymore. I walked away from it. It's becoming hard to be a Christian in Australia. Uh, likewise, I was chatting to someone recently in a cafe. They said to me they'd, they'd grown up in a Christian family, uh, that they'd even gone to a Christian school. They would have identified as a Christian uh, really until their late high school years. Then in their late high school years and into university, they decided to, to walk away from their faith in Christ. Uh, as far as I could tell, it was predominantly because they feared being rejected by certain friends and family members who, who disagreed with Christianity on certain points. And it was just kind of easier to go with the flow of those relationships. But I reckon it's becoming increasingly hard in Australia to be a Christian. So how is it possible in the midst of this pressure and suffering to keep trusting and obeying Jesus? Not so much uh, the the kind of general suffering that we might experience in this world. That is very painful and can cause us to have doubts about our faith. Uh, But the suffering that comes in particular... Because you're seeking to follow Christ. You're seeking to trust and obey Christ in every area of your life. How is it possible to keep trusting and obeying Jesus even in the midst of suffering? Now, that's the big question that I'm going to try to answer from this passage we're looking at today. So if you've got the uh, Matthew 26 open, you might find that helpful. I hope you do. Uh, there's also an outline of the sermon on the welcome card. You might want to follow on. Uh, you'll see the first point there uh, is in verses 31 to 35. Uh, where Jesus predicts that all his disciples are going to disown him in the midst of suffering. So you'll see there in verse 31, Jesus and his disciples, if you look back, they've just had the Passover meal. Here they are on the slopes of the Mount of Olives just outside Jerusalem. And in verse 31, Jesus says, This very night uh, you will all fall away on account of me. So if you remember last week, Jesus predicted that that one of his disciples was going to betray him. And now he goes a step further and says all his disciples are going to fall away. Which, you know, is a bit depressing, isn't it? A fall away there has the sense of being caused to stumble into sin, being caused to stumble away from Christ. It's where we get our word scandal. The Greek word here is scandalizomai. Right? So there's kind of, these guys are going to be, there's going to be a scandal as they stumble away from Christ. And Jesus says they're going to fall away, notice, on account of him, because of him. Right? They're falling away because they don't want to identify with Jesus. They don't want to be associated with Jesus. And Jesus says this is going to happen, notice, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd 
and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Right? This is a quote from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 in the Old Testament. Uh, the point being that, that Jesus is God's promised shepherd king, the one that God has sent to care for his flock, his people, and Jesus is going to be struck. That's a kind of catch-all term for all of his suffering, his betrayal, his arrest, his unjust trial, his crucifixion. Jesus will be struck, and at that point, his whole flock is not going to stick fat with him. His whole flock is going to scatter from him. So just as Judas' betrayal we saw last week was kind of written into God's sovereign plan that we saw in the Old Testament, so also the falling away of all Jesus' disciples was written in to God's sovereign plan. But it's not all doom and gloom. Look at verse 32. Jesus says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So despite his disciples disowning him and falling away, uh, Jesus' grace is abundant. He says, when I conquer death on the other side of the grave, I'm going to go ahead of you and meet you guys in Galilee. You're still going to be my guys, even though you've deserted me. Now, of course, Peter, he can't believe that Jesus is even suggesting that he's going to fall away, that he's going to betray him. Uh, So in his kind of typically impulsive fashion, look in verse 33. uh, He says, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. But Jesus kind of solemnly says, truly I tell you, this very night, right? it's not going to take ages, right? before the rooster crows at dawn, you will disown me, not just once, but three times. To disown Jesus is to deny Jesus, to deny your connection with him, to deny that you're one of his disciples. Maybe you can look it up later on. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, Jesus said to follow him is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. That that was his call to discipleship. Here Jesus is predicting that in his moment of greatest need, when he takes up his cross, Peter's going to deny not himself, but Jesus. He's going to completely miss the boat as a disciple. Well, as Peter sometimes does, look at verse 35. Uh, Jesus sometimes gets a bit emotional. Peter sometimes gets a bit emotional. Uh, And he sometimes uh, presumes that it's his position to correct Jesus. Look at verse 35. It's kind of as if he's saying, no, 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 Lord, you've got it wrong. But even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And of course, all the other disciples said the same. But that's Jesus' prediction. Despite his disciples' protest, he says, all you guys, when the pressure's turned up in the midst of suffering, all you guys are going to disown me. And then in verses 36 to 39, we see that Jesus is under pressure too, right? Jesus is suffering greatly. Look in verse 36. Matthew says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane, this is probably a kind of enclosed garden on the slopes of the Mount of Olives outside, just outside Jerusalem. Uh, So there's this garden, Gethsemane, and in verse 36, uh, you'll see in the next part that Jesus asked eight of his disciples... That's not counting Judas, who we presume at this stage has already scuttled off, kind of snuck off to betray Jesus. So Jesus asks eight of his disciples to sit outside the garden while he goes inside to pray. But in verse 37, you see that he does take, Jesus does take his kind of closest disciples along, his most trusted friends, Peter, James, and John. 
I don't know if you've had this experience before, but sometimes when I'm having a hard time in life, it's only when I'm alone with, with people who I feel safe with that I, that I actually let my guard down and say, look, really, I'm struggling. It's a bit like well, that's what happens here. It's when Jesus is alone in the garden with his most trusted friends that he lets his guard down on his suffering. Matthew says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He says to Peter, James and John, verse 38, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So look at verse 39. Jesus goes a little further away and it's like he kind of collapses to the ground in his grief. I don't know if you've seen someone who's totally weeping and wailing in grief. Right? Sometimes they, they can barely hold themselves up. It's a bit of the picture here. Jesus is so burdened by his grief. His sorrow that he collapses face down on the ground. Jesus is obviously suffering greatly. Which leads to the question, why? Maybe you know why, but the reality is throughout church history, lots of Christians have been martyred for their faith. And most of them, if you read the stories, have faced their deaths with a lot more courage than Jesus seems to have here. So why is Jesus so distressed? Uh, at Oxford in, in 1555, for example, two men, uh, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. This is the Ridley that, that Ridley College here in Melbourne is named after, if you know the kind of Bible college here. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer uh, were burned at the stake in 1555, uh, and when the fire was being lit beneath them, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good cheer, for we shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England that will never be put out. Right, that's courage, isn't it? That's the kind of courage you could get behind. The kind of courage that you'd want to follow. Courage in the face of immense death and suffering. So why isn't Jesus like that? Why is Jesus so distressed? Elsewhere, if you've read through Matthew's Gospel account, it doesn't seem like Jesus is someone who lacks courage and conviction. It doesn't seem like he's a bit emotionally fragile, you know, a little bit precious. It doesn't seem like that. It must be that Jesus' suffering and death is unique in some way. And the uniqueness comes from the fact that the physical pain that Jesus is about to endure is nothing compared to the spiritual pain. It's the spiritual pain that's the big deal for Jesus. There's two hints of that spiritual pain. The first is the mention of the cup in verse 39, take a look in verse 39. Jesus says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And you'll see if you scan down that he says the same thing in verse 42. And we're told he says the same thing again in verse 44. This cup is really on Jesus' mind. In the Old Testament, this cup is always a symbol of God's righteous anger against our sin. I'll read one verse from Isaiah 51, for example. There are others. But in Isaiah 51, verse 17, uh, we read, Awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, notice the language, the cup of his wrath, his anger, the cup that makes men stagger. And if you've got Isaiah 51 open, you can scan down to verse 22. Uh, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God uh, who defends his people, See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that makes you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. 
Right, Jesus' suffering in the garden is so distressing, so overwhelming, so great, because he's recognizing that he's going to have to drink the, the cup of God's righteous anger against all our sin. He's not intimidated by the crucifixion. He's intimidated about bearing his father's anger at all our sin. That's the first thing that Jesus is so distressed by. Uh, The second thing, the second hint of the spiritual pain Jesus is is experiencing uh, is that that Jesus has a unique relationship with God. Take a look at verse 39 again. Jesus starts his prayer by saying, My Father, my Father. Those two words there really give us a glimpse into why Jesus is in such agony in the garden. A beginning here in the garden, climaxing at the cross. For the first time ever in Jesus' existence, he experiences the rejection of his loving Heavenly Father. Because he's bearing the sins of the world. And he finds that absolutely agonizing. I think all of us know that the deeper and more loving and intimate a relationship we have, the more painful it is if that person rejects us. So it's one thing for an acquaintance to reject you. That might be a little bit painful. It's another thing for a friend to reject you. That could be painful. But it's a whole other thing for a parent or a sibling or a husband or wife to reject you. Because the love in that relationship is so deep and intimate. Your your lives were so entwined that, that rejection is agony. So imagine how painful it would have been for Jesus to be rejected by his loving Heavenly Father. For all eternity, Jesus and his Father have loved one another with a deep and intimate love, a love really that's far deeper than any love that any of us have ever experienced. But the love and intimacy between Jesus and his Father were really unimaginably deep. So the rejection Jesus experienced from his Father was unimaginably painful, agonizing. Right? That's why Jesus is suffering so greatly here in the garden. It's not really about the pain of having nails bang through his hands. It's the pain of the cup. It's the pain of being rejected by his father. And yet even in the midst of that suffering, Jesus trusts and obeys his father. He does that in three main ways. He does it first by praying to his father. You might remember uh, back in chapter 22, Jesus said, uh, this is what it looks like to obey God's law. How did he summarize it? In loving God and loving others. Uh, So here in the garden, Jesus gives uh, expression to his love for God, his Father, first by praying to his Father. Three times he goes away from his disciples and he kind of gets on his knees and brings his requests before his Father. But you notice he doesn't only pray to his father, he also surrenders to his father. In verse 39, he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. Scan down to verse 42, he says, may your will be done. In verse 44, he says the same thing again, at least along similar lines, we're told. So you see the pattern of Jesus' prayers. Good to note for your own prayer life. Jesus unashamedly, repeatedly Asks his father for what he wants. Right? 
If there's any other way, Jesus is saying, for us to bring salvation to the world, uh, that, that can avoid me drinking this cup, can avoid me being rejected by, if there's any other way, Father, may that be so. And he unashamedly asks his Father for what he wants, but ultimately he surrenders to his Father's will. Why does he do that? Because he knows that his Father loves him, and that in the end his Father's going to take care of him. That's worth noting for your own prayer life. Unashamedly ask your father for what you want and then surrender to his will. Now that's what Jesus does here. He prays to his father. He surrenders to his father. And then also he trusts and obeys his father by loving his disciples. Remember those two parts of God's law? Not just loving God, but loving others. And here in the garden, Jesus loves his disciples. Right? Jesus as the kind of sovereign king over all creation. Remember the glorious son of man from Daniel chapter 7. Jesus could have easily said to his disciples, why should I lay down my life for a pack of failures like you? We'll see in a second, they can't even stay awake for an hour. Jesus could have easily said that, and yet he keeps coming back to his disciples. He perseveres with his disciples. He teaches his disciples. He warns his disciples. And ultimately, he's willingly arrested, and he suffers and dies for his disciples. Jesus loves others. He loves his disciples. As you see, Jesus' perfect obedience here in the garden, the ultimate test of his obedience. Uh, up until this point, Jesus has known that he's going to suffer, but here in the garden, he, he actually gets a taste of that suffering. And instead of running away, instead of backing out, he commits to trusting and obeying his Father. And you can chase up this later on, but, but to put it in perspective, you might remember that at the start of the story of the Bible, there's another garden, isn't there? The Garden of Eden. There's another man, Adam. And God says to Adam in the Garden of Eden, if you trust and obey me, you will live. It's going to be glorious. And yet Adam fails, doesn't he? He fails to trust God. He fails to obey God. And yet here in this garden, there's a different man, Jesus Christ. And God, says to, God the Father says to him, if you trust and obey me, you will suffer and die on the cross. And Jesus does it. He's the ultimate Adam, the perfect human, the one who brings salvation to the world, you see. Right, Jesus is the one who trusts and obeys his Father, even in the face of immense suffering. On the other hand, his disciples fail miserably. Right, they, they fail in three main ways. First, they fail because they fall asleep on Jesus. Uh, take a look in verse 38. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John uh, to keep watch, uh, to, sorry, what does he say? To sit and keep watch with him. He's saying, be alert, stay awake, be switched on, which doesn't seem that much to ask. You know, if your friend's suffering and they say, all I want you to do is stay awake with me, like, you'd reckon that wouldn't be too hard, but for these guys, they, they, they can't nail it. Uh, three times, you see, in verses 40 to 45, three times Jesus goes away to pray. Three times he comes back to, uh, comes back to find his disciples sleeping. I notice in verse 40 that he singles out, Jesus singles out Peter. Because Peter, you know, is pretty bold with all his declarations. I'll never let you down, Jesus. Yet here he is almost straight away and he can't even stay awake. In verse 41, Jesus urges them to, to stay awake again, to watch and to pray. Uh, this time he, he says because he doesn't want them to fall into temptation. But Jesus is saying that, that if you want to stay faithful to him in the time of testing... 
You've got to stay prayerfully alert. You've got to be prayerfully dependent on God. Why? Because even if your spirit's willing to do the right thing, to follow through on trusting and obeying Jesus, your human flesh is weak. So don't get complacent. Don't fall asleep. Watch and pray, Jesus says. But Jesus' disciples don't do that. A second and third time, he comes back to find them asleep. So Jesus' disciples fail first because they fall asleep on Jesus. Uh, And then we see that Judas fails uh, because he betrays Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 45. Jesus' disciples are asleep. You know, he's come back again. And so he kind of jolts them awake saying, Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, Jesus says. Let us go, here comes my betrayer. You see the vibe here, Jesus is saying, now's not the moment for lying on the ground falling asleep. Right? Now's the moment for standing up and being alert, being switched on. Why? Because the Son of Man, that's Jesus, is going to be betrayed, delivered into the hands of sinners. He's going to be unjustly arrested and tried and crucified because Judas is about to betray him. Look in verse 47. Matthew emphasizes again, remember Jesus said last week, the one who betrays me is going to dip into the same bowl as me. It's a picture of intimacy and, and fellowship with one another. Here Jesus says, uh, here Matthew says, Judas is one of the twelve. We're supposed to read that and think Judas is one of the people closest to Jesus in the world. What a horrible betrayal. And, and notice that the crowds that, that come to arrest Jesus are sent uh, by the religious people. The Jewish leaders based in the temple, the chief priests and elders, which should at least alert us to the fact that sometimes there's a difference between the, not always, but sometimes there's a difference between the religious establishment and the people of Jesus. But here it's the religious people that miss the boat on Jesus and end up crucifying him. Obviously, they're ready for a fight. They come under the cover of darkness with swords and clubs. And of course, uh, and, and look in verse uh, 48 and 49, uh, you see there that Judas uh, has arranged a signal with the crowds. He's going to identify Jesus with a kiss. Maybe that seems a little bit strange to us. Uh, I don't know, but uh, not many of you greet me with a kiss as, as kind of someone who's a teacher in your life. Uh, but in this day and age, it was very common for a Jewish disciple to greet their rabbi with a kiss. Probably Judas has done this lots of times before. Uh, And here he does it again. But this time, of course, it's different, isn't it? It's a kiss of death. Uh, We see this often in in the Gospels. Jesus sees right through the charade. You know, people are trying to play games with Jesus. But look at verse 50. Jesus essentially says, Judas, just get on with it. You know, do what you came here to do. I I know what's going on here, Jesus says. Uh, So some men step forward and seize Jesus and arrest him. The point here is that some disciples fail by falling asleep. Judas fails by betraying Jesus. And right at the end of the passage, at the second half of verse 56, uh, we see that all the disciples uh, fail Jesus because they desert him. Matthew says, all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. So after all their kind of bold declarations of commitment to Jesus... Here at the moment of the first sign of suffering for the sake of following Jesus, they desert him. They flee from him. So what do we see in this passage as a whole? 
And we see that it's Jesus who, in the face of immense suffering, trusts and obeys his Father. So what does Jesus deserve? Jesus deserves to experience life, doesn't he? He deserves to experience the ongoing love and affection of his Father in heaven. He deserves to glory in his Father's presence. That's on the, on the one hand. On the other hand, we've seen that Jesus' disciples fail to trust and obey Jesus in the midst of suffering. And let's be honest, most of the time we're more like the disciples here than Jesus, are And when the pressure's on, when the suffering's turned up a bit for the sake of following Jesus, we're much more likely to fall asleep, to disown Jesus, to deny him, to desert him, to, to flee from him. Uh, unless, you, you, you know, you're nothing like me. What do we deserve? Well, we deserve kind of the opposite of what Jesus deserves. In our sin, we've cut ourselves off from God, the source of all life. Uh, and so we deserve death. We deserve to be rejected by God, to be cast out of God's presence. But the wonderful news of this passage is at the end of the passage, verses 51 to 56, where we see that Jesus willingly suffers and dies in our place. Jesus willingly bears what we deserve on the cross. It's not as direct, but let's try and draw that out. In verse, take a look at verse 51. Uh, seemingly out of nowhere, one of Jesus' disciples kind of whips out the sword and then chops off one of the high priest's servant's ears, which must have, you know, <laughs> a pretty intense scene. Uh, we're told in John's Gospel, maybe unsurprisingly, that this disciple was Peter. And maybe that's yeah, unsurpri- not surprising given how impulsive Peter is. And look in verse 52. Jesus rebukes Peter. Uh, and it's a, really a little bit like that scene I mentioned before back in Matthew chapter 16, where, where Peter kind of says to Jesus, no, 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 as God's king, you can establish God's kingdom without suffering and dying on the cross. Right, so Peter and maybe the other disciples, you know, Peter gets a bad rap. He's probably just the spokesperson for all the disciples. Right, so so the, the disciples have this kind of misunderstanding about the nature of God's kingdom. So take a look in verse 53. Jesus says, well, well, sure, if I wanted to, I could call down all my father's angels from heaven and establish, God, establish his kingdom by force, by brute force. I could do that, Jesus says. Uh, but Jesus says in verse 54, the scriptures make it clear that God's kingdom must be established through weakness, right, through the suffering and death of God's king. See, the contrast here, God's kingdom is not about the power of the sword, but about the power of the cross. So in verse 55, Jesus says, why did you come and arrest me by force like this? I'm not leading some political rebellion. You could have arrested me any time, Jesus says, when I was teaching in the temple courts. You didn't need to come and arrest me by force because I'm willingly giving my life. You didn't need to come and arrest me in secret. The only reason they're arresting Jesus in secret, of course, is because they know uh, that they've got no legitimate reason for arresting him and for getting rid of him. And they're worried about the backlash from the crowds. We saw that back at the start of Matthew 26. Uh, But look where it lands in verse 56. Jesus points out that God's going to use the sinful actions of these uh, Jewish religious leaders to fulfill his sovereign plan. But his plan, notice, that the Old Testament prophets wrote about. It was revealed in the scriptures. 
What God has written in the Scriptures, Jesus says, is going to be fulfilled. Scriptures, for example, like Zechariah 13, verse 7, which Jesus quoted back in verse 31. Why, Jesus knows that his role in the plan that he and his father worked out before the foundation of the world, that plan that was hinted at and revealed in, in kind of shadows in the Old Testament, his role in that plan is to suffer and die in our place. And so that's what he willingly does. Right? Jesus deserves life. He's the one who trusts and obeys his Father perfectly. He deserves life. But on the cross, he willingly embraces death in our place. He deserves to be showered with his Father's love and affection. But on the cross, he willingly absorbed his Father's anger in our place. Jesus deserves to revel, to glory in his Father's presence. But on the cross, he's willingly cast out of his Father's presence. This is God's amazing grace to us in the gospel. This is why Christians sing amazing grace. For on the cross, Christ received everything that we deserved so that by faith in him, we can receive everything that he deserved. And the truth is, it's only when your heart is really gripped by this, the wonders of God's grace to you in Christ, it's only when that happens on a kind of deeper and more profound level uh, that you'll be empowered to trust and obey Jesus even in the midst of suffering. I'll explain it, but I think that uh, when you're called to suffer for the sake of Christ, to suffer on account of Christ when you're tempted to deny Jesus, to disown Jesus. Uh, the reality is that, that sometimes you think, gee, I must be in this tricky situation because Jesus doesn't love me. If he did, he, he wouldn't put me through this test. Right? But if you look to the cross, you, you, you could never doubt Jesus' love for you, could you? Right? He willingly suffered and died for you on the cross. How much more could he show his love for you? Sometimes when you're called to suffer for the sake of Christ, you, you might think, well, well, Jesus must be angry with me. He's punishing me through this hard time I'm experiencing as a Christian. But if you look to the cross, you, you remember that Jesus drank every last drop of God's anger at your sin. So he's not angry with you. He's not punishing you. This glorious truth that Jesus lived the perfect life for you. This glorious truth that he did that and he willingly suffered and died for you. That truth should empower you to keep trusting and obeying Jesus even in the midst of suffering. Jesus is the perfect one. He lived the life of perfect obedience. We're not the perfect one. Uh, and yet Jesus willingly suffered and died for us on the cross. That's the truth that empowers us moment by moment, day by day, to keep trusting and obeying him, even when we're called to suffer for his sake. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And we just pray, Father, that uh, we pray that you would use your word by the power of your spirit uh, to move us uh, to keep trusting and obeying our Lord Jesus, uh, even when we're called to suffer for his sake. In his name we pray. Amen.